24, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham, were written, were not written for his sake alone, but for our sakes. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Paul combines the thought of him being delivered up with him being raised up. It's that act, both the delivering up and the raising up, which secures for us eternally our justification, our standing before God. And so we come not with fear and trembling, but with thankful hearts, full of praise for this Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Christ, we do pause as we begin this sermon with a real thankfulness, a real joy, a real feeling that you are beautiful, you are glorious, you are magnificent. There is none like you. We come to you now and ask that you would work in the preaching of your word, that you would send your spirit to this place in this time in a special way, that your children might be encouraged and built up and edified, that those who have come lost might leave having been found. Oh God, work your work through your word. Amen. You may be seated. Evidence that demands belief. Evidence that demands belief. Last week, we looked at John chapter 20. We brought it from verse, uh, from, from the first mention of his resurrection through the appearance of Christ to Mary and then to, uh, to the disciples, to Peter and then to the disciples. And we stopped off at verse 23. I said I wanted to save a sermon specifically for Thomas. And I did that because I believe that this evidence demands belief. Last week I said you cannot pass an empty tomb and say it does not matter. When you pass the empty tomb, when you go past Christ's tomb, you have to say I believe or I disbelieve. And this week, I think through the story that John has written for us about Thomas's experience with Christ post-resurrection, the evidence of that empty tomb demands your belief. In such a way that if you do not believe, if you leave unbelieving, you have committed a sin. God is not simply saying, choose if you so choose, choose to believe in Jesus. He is demanding that you believe in Jesus. He's not politely requesting your belief. He's calling for it. He's requiring it. I mean, we need to believe. And I don't just talk to lost people. It's easy to stand behind a pulpit on a stage and holler or scream, get red-faced and mad at sinners for being sinners. I'm not mad at you. I'm just like you. Save one thing. Christ. I'm just like you. 
I'm not angry. But I'm begging. I'm pleading. I'm preaching to you as a dying man preaches to dying people. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And that's what this story is. That's what Thomas' experience with Christ says. Believe. And so I want to read it with you. And I hope you're at John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. It's interesting to me that he keeps being called the twin because the Hebrew name Thomas means twin. Like They don't want their Greek readers to miss it. They might not be up on their Thomas uh, meanings. So they're saying his daddy and mama called him Thomas because... He's a twin. Didymus. Some would impugn Thomas with this title. Some would say there was another disciple who was his twin. We're not sure of that. I don't want to enter that as evidence, but simply to say that possibly, maybe not. There's some who say he got this title in in the Gospels because he was always fighting the inferiority complex. That his twin was better than him. In some way. Thought of more highly than him. I don't know. It doesn't say that. Maybe. But he's a twin. Thomas the twin. Was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him. I don't know when they told him. That day. Maybe that Sunday they told him. Maybe later in the week they told him. I don't know why he wasn't there. This text leaves us with a lot of questions. I don't know why he wasn't there. I don't know when they told him. I don't know why they keep calling the man twin, twin. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me why they do it sometimes. I know this. What I'm about to read is evidence you you can't dismiss. It's sure and confident evidence. They told him, and he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples, one week later, the next Sunday, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, notice it's the same thing that happened last time he showed up. This time Thomas is there. Doors locked. They're huddled up, praying. Here comes Jesus. Jesus came and stood with them and said, Peace be with you. Same thing He said last time. He's duplicating His appearance. He comes through a locked door. He stands in their midst. He says, Peace be with you. But this time, instead of addressing all of them, He wants to speak directly to Thomas. Jesus said, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not continue disbelieving. Believe now and forevermore. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We might be tempted to question the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. Skepticism is a real problem in the human heart, and it comes from the fall. The original forefathers, Adam and Eve, were skeptics at heart. Did God really say you would die? Now, the skepticism rose. Maybe He didn't say we would die. Maybe it would be better for us to eat. Skepticism is in the natural man's very D and A. Question God at every turn. Do not believe. Cries out from the human. And it's increased evermore in the fall. It is a product of our falling condition, we can say. Many people have questioned the validity of the resurrection because it is so unnatural, so miraculous. In fact, if it is true that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the Christian faith is false. But He did rise. The evidence of His resurrection is unavoidable. Not only is there clear and irrefutable internal evidence in the Scriptures from His followers, but there is external historical evidence. I want to give you a few. Because some of you came in here skeptics at heart. Oh, sure, a bunch of fishermen who hallucinate often and dream about a resurrection wrote about it. Paul, who fell off the wagon somewhere in the Jewish faith, wrote about it. It was probably modified hundreds of years later as it was passed down in tradition. How can we believe when all we have for evidence is the Bible? Well, I think the Bible is all you need. But I also know God has given us some other evidence. A Roman administrator named Pliny in A.D. 112 wrote this. They, speaking about the Christians, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. Now, Pliny oversaw severe persecution of the church. He administrated it. What he's giving you is the way that he found Christians. The way he taught his soldiers to find them. Listen to how you will find them. They... We're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. Sunday. Listen, brothers and sisters, non-believer, believer, ask yourself this. Why would good, faithful Jewish people change the day they worshipped if the resurrection is not true? Why would they go from Saturday to Sunday without any written command from God? They changed it. The fixed day they all got together was Sunday. And they did it before daylight. Yet another evidence that they believed in a resurrection, He was raised at daylight. Just in the twilight moments. When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as if He a God. And bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery. Never to falsify their word, nor deny trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of, in, 
of an ordinary and innocent kind. They got together at the break of morning on Sunday, Pliny says, you can find them. And they'll be singing a hymn to Christ as if He is God. Catch them before they leave, because when they come back, they're going to eat a meal. A love feast. Together. Pliny, AD 12, A Roman emperor sent this to Nazareth in AD 40. Now, this is a remarkable thing to me. The Roman Empire is far flung at this point. Huge. From the edges of England through to the Middle East. Enormous. But the emperor takes time to write this to the people at Nazareth. Why Nazareth? Listen to these words. Ordinance of Caesar. It is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain perpetually undisturbed for those who have made them for the cult of their ancestors or children or members of their house. If, however, anyone charges that another has either demolished them or has in any other way extracted the buried or has maliciously transferred them to other places in order to wrong them or has displaced the ceiling on other stones against such a one, I order that a trial be instituted. As in respect of the gods, so in regard to the cult of mortals, for it shall be much more obligatory to honor the buried. Let it be absolutely forbidden for anyone to disturb them. In case of violation, I desire that the offender be sentenced to capital punishment on charge of violation of sepulcher. Why would a Roman emperor send an order to a far-flung province, to a little bitty despised village, saying, hey, you Nazarenes, I hear y'all like to talk about raising the dead. If I catch you stealing bodies from graves, claiming they're raised, I'll kill you. The evidence is not just internal to the Bible, nor to his followers, but to skeptics themselves. They're afraid. They're scared. Here they are in 40 A.D. commanding nobody disturb a grave. Why? Well, maybe because the whole province of Judea was being turned upside down. And the world was being turned upside down because people were running across the world claiming that a man was raised from the dead and nobody could refute their claim. Nobody could refute it. Justin Martyr in 150 A.D., one of the earliest Christian uh, uh, fathers, wrote this. He wrote an open letter to a Roman emperor claiming that the emperor could find records of the birth of Jesus, the life and miracle of Jesus, and the reports of a resurrection of Jesus from the official reports filed by Pilate himself. He wrote an open letter challenging the emperor to look at the evidence. He not only wrote one to the emperor, but he wrote it to the leaders of the Jews and said, you can find it all documented by external sources in history. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. What is Justin doing? Justin Martyr is throwing down the challenge. Disprove it. It's written as if it's fact. Find him. Now, how could a man in 150 A.D., just a few, literally a few years since his death and resurrection, challenge people so assuredly that there was no body in a grave without fear that they would find a body. 
Listen, we do not need external evidence. We have the evidence of the Word. And I'm going to tell you later, the Holy Spirit is all evidence that you need. But we have it. We have evidence. N.T. Wright, who I disagree with on so many things lately, wrote one of the best defenses of resurrection in his work, The Resurrection of the Son of God. He wrote these six statements as irrefutable. There's no way anyone can challenge this. Even the liberal scholars are left scratching their heads. He says this, first, in ancient times, both the Jews and the Greeks had a clear understanding that resurrection meant a restoration of a physical body after death. The Greeks believed that this was impossible. Some Jews had a belief in bodily resurrection, bodily resurrection but only at the end of the age. What is he saying? The liberals charge, oh, everyone back then believed people raised from the dead. It was widely held that people came up out of the grave. Funny, nobody wrote about it. Nobody claimed that this was something that happened on a regular basis. Mary Magdalene didn't go there, see nobody, and say, hey, he must have been raised from the dead. Neither did Peter or John. They weren't crazy, hallucinating fishermen and poor people running around claiming some commonly held belief of resurrection. It's just not the case. Secondly, the earliest Christian writer... Paul clearly believed in a physical bodily resurrection, both of Jesus and in the future for believers. He clearly believes it because he wrote it in 1 Corinthians 15. If he himself was raised from the dead, then we ourselves can expect those of us in Christ to be raised from the dead. It's not that there's some spiritual glorification which occurred, is what N.T. Wright's saying. His body came out of the grave. Third, From the earliest times, Christians believed in an empty tomb and a bodily resurrection of Jesus who could be seen and touched rather than in some spiritual resurrection. Fourth, the resurrection stories of the Gospels are early, credible, consistent, eyewitness-based reports and accounts. They're clearly intended to describe a literal, historical event. This is not some object lesson. They're teaching history when they write. Fifth, the accounts of the appearance of the risen Jesus cannot be explained as some kind of fantasy, hallucination, or spiritual experience without external uh, reality. It, It just can't be. There's too much evidence is what Wright's saying. Sixth, he finally says, Jesus' body was really dead, not comatose. It was truly buried, and it actually left behind an empty tomb that had been guarded by soldiers. His tomb really is now as empty as the cross. And it's on that statement that I say, Amen. Truth. His grave is as empty as His cross. And so, therefore, we are justified. The evidence for resurrection is irrefutable. It's everywhere. It's not just some places. Martin Luther's famous way of talking about the resurrection was to say that the resurrection is self-evident in the rebirth of this fallen earth in the spring blooming of the trees. 
God wants you to know there is a resurrection. There is new life, is his point. The evidence is external. The evidence is internal. The evidence demands your faith. Demands your faith. And so we're left with evidence necessary to believe in the real, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I know some of you are saying, I'm still unconvinced. I don't believe. And so it's to you and to those who say without even a thought, what's all the fuss about? I believe in a resurrection. Who wouldn't believe in a resurrection? I want to talk to both of you a little while. All right, this morning. Because I think it's foolish for you to leave unbelieving. I think it's foolish for you to leave believing blindly. I want you to believe because there is clear witness to his resurrection. And so John gives us that in the person of Thomas. Now, who is Thomas? A little background about Thomas. John has written about Thomas three times. I want you to hold your place in 20 and go to John chapter 11, where he's going to talk and he's going to tell us the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus, having been in Jerusalem in chapter 10, the Jews are trying to kill him because of his teaching. He withdraws, goes to the area of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And it's in this area where he reaches his most pinnacle success. Thousands literally are coming to the desert to be with Jesus. And it's during this time they receive a message from Bethany saying, Your friend Lazarus is sick. He's dying. Jesus' response, to wait one day, two days, nothing. I'm tempted, but I'm not going to chase that rabbit. But I just want to kind of let it pop its head up. Some of you have been praying a long time. You don't think God's answering. He doesn't answer on your time, but he will answer. They sent a telegram, handwritten note, prayer. Jesus, our brother, is dying. And I'm sure they expected him to walk the short distance back to Bethany, 12 miles from Jerusalem, and heal Lazarus. But he sat still for what to them must have seemed an eternity while their brother suffered and died. He's dead four days. And then Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, famously, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's dead. But I go to awake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And then Jesus had told them about his death, but they thought he meant that he was taking a rest in sleep. And Jesus said, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that he is not, that I was not there 
so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, here we see Thomas in John's gospel the first time. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas has been said to be a lot like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. You see why? Jesus says, we're going to Judea. He's the light. You're walking in the light. He's dead. We're going to go wake him up. Raise him from the dead. Out of all of the positives, Thomas finds the rainy cloud. Maybe it's his personality. Maybe it's past experience. He's a pessimist. You've been around these people, right? He's a pessimist. He struggles. He is not going to give his faith to just anyone. He's a skeptic at heart. But let's be careful. He is not a coward. He is courageous. Nobody else in the circle stood up, sandals on, satchel in hand, and said, let us go with him so that we too may also die. He didn't go expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. He went expecting to meet those same Jews they left in John chapter 10 and receive the stones in his flesh. And yet he raised up and said, I will go with him. So before we cast stones at him, as the Jews would have done, Let's remember his courage. Let's remember his loyalty. The man may be a skeptic, but he's faithful. Then we find him in the second time in John 14, the upper room discourse, Jesus teaching on heaven. I mean, what more positive thing can be taught on than heaven? I mean, there's 35,000 people, churches being built on talking about heaven and the good times that are now and in the future. Jesus teaches on it, and this is what Thomas says. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus just gave the greatest teaching on heaven ever given to man. And Thomas says skeptically, a lot of luck we got getting there. We don't even know where we're going. It's It's just who he is, you know. It's inside of him. It's his nature. And then we find him in John chapter 20, where our text is, 24 through 31. Thomas makes a demand for evidence. The disciples have been in the upper room. Thomas was not there. We don't know why. We don't need to guess why. He just wasn't there. He, he, he was absent, and Jesus showed up. And they've told him, and Thomas, being Thomas, says, No, I'm not going to believe until I put my finger where the nails were and thrust my hand into his side. 
I need tangible, physical evidence. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers ding on Thomas. Okay? But nobody else believed without evidence either. Mary Magdalene, she didn't believe until he called her name. And he was standing in front of her. Peter's account, we don't know what happened with Peter. I imagine that was a tearjerker of a meeting. You deny Christ three times and then face him face to face in his resurrection. All we get is he appeared to Cephas in the story. That one was a little too personal, I think. Then to the disciples. None of them knew what to believe. They were all sitting up there wondering what to believe, and Jesus showed up and they saw him in his resurrection. I can't help but think about the Olivet Discourse. And I don't want to push too far here, but I do want to say, remember Jesus told them, there will be many who will come claiming to be me. Be careful that you're not led astray. They'll come from the city. They'll come from within. They'll come from without. They'll drive you into the wilderness. Don't go. Don't believe them. So, I just want to put out there that Thomas has... Even Jesus' own warnings to tell him not to simply believe everything he hears after the crucifixion. Okay? Nobody else believed without evidence. And Thomas not only has that on his side, but he also has the teaching of Christ himself about the false Christ which would come. And so when they tell him, he says, I need evidence. And some of you need that. You want that. You're calling for that. You're challenging for that. You're pushing for that with God. He demanded it. He didn't just say, well, it would be nice if I could see Him. Look what He says. Unless. Could He say it any more? He uses double negative terms here. Unless I see in His hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into His side, I will never believe. Double negative. I will not ever believe it. Bold statement. I think it's driven from a lot of things. I think it's driven from the things I've shared with you. I think it's also driven from his loyalty. He wasn't about to give his loyalty to anybody else save Jesus Christ. So he's just looking for evidence. He demanded it. And then he receives a merciful answer to the request of evidence. He receives a merciful answer. They're gathered together on the eighth day, that next Sunday, in the way of Jewish timing. It was the eighth day. They're there after nightfall, probably, gathered in the room, upper room, Sunday evening. And Jesus shows up. Jesus, notice, does not rebuke one time. He does not rebuke. He does not lose his cool. He does not call names. He does not put Thomas down. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Some of you are demanding evidence. You want to know, is this real? And I want to tell you, you remember I said this when he calls you? It won't be rebuke. It'll be love. It'll be gentle. It'll be hands extended. Believe. Don't go on disbelieving. Believe. Our Lord is tender 
He is loving. He is merciful. And He stoops to the sinner, never asking the sinner to raise himself up. He's not telling you to be better and to be more sturdy in your faith so you can believe. When He comes to you, lost man, woman, child, He will come on your level through His Spirit. And He will gently draw you into His heart and say, Believe. I'm real. I'm alive. A merciful answer. Put your finger here. See the nail marks? Put your hand here. That's where they pierced me. And then we see in the passage a confession of true faith. No greater confession in this account of John 20 is given. Not one better. This is the top of the rung. Jesus standing, nail-pierced hands, sword-pierced side. Come on, put your fingers here, son. You want my side? There it is. Touch it. And he falls. He falls at the feet of Christ, saying, My Lord, my God. Even the most liberal of scholars when dealing with this text has fear in his heart. For anyone who says there's no claim that Jesus is God, Thomas begs to differ. My Lord and my God. Thomas is saying, you are God. And you are my Lord. I submit. I fall at your feet. Have your way. Take my life. This skeptical, crusty, hard, loyal, courageous, faithful man in one fell swoop melts with confession of faith. With a confession of faith. I mean, I think about this hymn. I think about it in terms of Thomas. Every time I hear it sung, I think about this passage. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, O weary one. Lay down your head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was. Weary and worn and sad, I found in Him a resting place. And He has made me glad. Listen to this verse. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water. Thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that living, life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived. And now I live in Him. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me. Your morn shall rise and all your day be bright. I looked to Jesus and I found in Him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. I think in that moment Thomas thought back to John 
11, where Jesus said, when you have light, if you stumble, the light is not in you. And in this moment, in calling him my Lord and my God, he's not only in the presence of the light, but the light is in him now. Coming forward from him, from his very lips. The skeptic has become a believer and he will never doubt again. He will die a martyr for this Jesus. He will die a martyr. Gladly because he believes. And so John brings his book to a close. Isn't it interesting that this story precedes the purpose of the book? The place of prominence given to this story is unmatched. He tells the story of Thomas and then he closes with his purpose. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing it, you may have life in His name. So, as I close, I simply ask, Christian, do you find yourself in the place of the despondent one? You know, those that you love are dying, sick, losing their jobs. That child you've prayed for all these many years remains in unbelief. You find your heart at times despondent. This is for you. Like Thomas, Jesus through the Spirit makes Himself known to you and says, Believe. Maybe you came a skeptic. Maybe you came doubting. Maybe you came saying, Yeah, this Jesus stuff is all good, nice for some, but for me, I just can't believe. I'm begging you to beg Him for evidence. Robert Stein, in talking about this passage, said, The greatest evidence is not the historical record. It's not even the biblical record. The greatest evidence is the effect of the Holy Spirit on millions since that day to believe willingly in a risen Christ. Have you stopped to think of that evidence, skeptic? There's no other, there's no other religion on the face of the earth who claims their leader died and was raised from the dead. Not the Muslims, not the Hindu, not the Buddhist, not the New Agers. There is no other religion, no other system that claims their leader is God. He came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died at the hands of sinners in their place, receiving their guilt and giving His righteousness and raised from the dead. There's not another one. And yet, good, believing people with more than average intelligence have placed their faith in this fool's lie, as the critics would call it. 
That alone should cause you as a skeptic to say, what makes me think I'm right and they're wrong? I challenge you to talk to one who has seen Christ's resurrection, not with their physical eyes, but with eyes of faith. I challenge you, talk with them. So whether you are a Christian, long time and struggling, or whether you're a, d- a doubter, a non-believer, a skeptic, this story, this man Thomas, points you to one man, Jesus Christ. Living, crucified, buried, resurrected. And the only thing left is the verdict for you. Belief or non-belief? Belief or non-belief? I'll leave it with you. Be glad to sit and talk with anyone for any amount of time over the Word, over your life, over this Christ. But do not pass Him by in disregard, without a thought. Because as he stood there looking at Thomas, hands outstretched, side exposed, in mercy, if you wait to see him with your physical eyes before you make a decision, it will be too late. For in that day, many will come before him. Those same nail piercings and scar in the side will be there, evident, on display. But he will be as a judge, not as a friend. Believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, help us now. Go with us.